Hello and welcome back to Success Back. I am Felix Becker and I am, of course, the Broke Surgeon. So I am really excited to share this one with you. Uh, last week, I had this incredible conversation with a fellow classmate of mine, Heidi Ashbaugh. We graduated medical school together in 2010 and she became an emergency room physician and then a life coach herself. So we had this incredible conversation where we caught up over the last 13 years and we talked about all the struggles we both see in medicine nowadays as well as how coaching can make a difference. I'm really excited. It's a powerful conversation. It's about 40 minutes long. I hope you get as much value out of it as I did having that conversation with her. She is absolutely a powerhouse in the coaching world. And if you want to connect with her, her contact information will be listed below. So without further ado, my friends, here comes Heidi Ashbaugh. Oh, you want me to just dive in? Well, why, why, why don't we? It's okay. been, I mean, really, it has been, I, yeah. at the very least, been since we graduated med school. So that's been 13 plus years ago. 2010. Yeah. Yeah. So what's yeah. been going on in your life? Sorry, that was my uh, alarm to <laughs> make sure I have fun. Um, life. So life has, you know, so I actually went and did my intern year out in LA. Um, and then Paul, who was... A year behind me in med school, uh, matched in Jacksonville the following year. So I ended up basically emailing their program and seeing if they had any spots that came available, would they be willing to consider me? So they ended up having a spot that came available. Um, super kind of random and one of those weird kind of serendipitous things. But um, I ended up trans transitioning after my intern year back to, to Jacksonville and took a spot there. Um, and so I finished residency in Jacksonville, and then I joined a local group here um, that's kind of an independent practice ER group. Um, got involved with some admin, maybe, I don't know, four or five years into um, joining the group and was the director of a freestanding ER for a couple of years, and then was asked, asked to be the medical director of our kind of flagship hospital. Um, ultimately, that was... <laughs> That was where kind of the burnout sort of started to to spiral and then corresponded with kind of birth of my second kid and and then COVID hit and it was really kind of where it all sort of came to a head of I don't want to do this anymore. Right. Um and that's where I found coaching. And truly our actually our hospital had hired a um he's a sports psychologist and mm -hmm. also had done some and physician co like coach. Um, but his background was in sports psychology, had actually was a, a sports psychologist with the, with Notre Dame. And um, so anyway, I had, I had spoken with him on several occasions and kind of just unpacked of like, what am I doing? Where am I going? What do I want to do? Um, but really was a huge instrumental part of change for me. And so I ended up kind of quitting the admin side and refocusing on what's next. Um, yeah. And pretty shortly thereafter, decided to do the certification for the life coaching um, and have been working on kind of building that since. So. Right. That's awesome. Yeah, that's yeah. been uh, almost a similar, similar and yet different path than, than, than what's been for me. But um, so you're emergency medicine. Mm -hmm. Are you are you still active clinically? Yeah. Yep. Um, I've decreased shifts over the years. Um, and some of that was, you know, with admin and I've kind of experimented this last year. I actually went to all nights, uh, as a little experiment. <laughs> I just came off of all night. So oh, wow. I'm feeling the relief of some of that. There was, there was good and bad. Ultimately yeah. I realized it just wasn't the ideal for me. 
right but, uh, no but that's yeah. uh, so so that's very interesting so the it's the admin side that burns you out not the clinical side you know i think there was burnout on both ends is the truth um yeah. i think it accelerated with covid for sure um on both sides um, right. But I felt like I wasn't able to make the difference that I wanted to make in the admin role, um, which is the only reason I took the role is because I felt like I could potentially make a difference. And I just realized I was hitting roadblocks that I was not going to overcome without beating my head into a wall, you know? Sure. Um, and so I think that tipped, tipped me over. I mean, I still loved the patient care side of things. There were certainly parts of the patient care side, especially that were exacerbated during COVID um, that contributed to the burnout for sure. Right, right. No, for sure. So um, it, this is interesting on the admin side of things. So I, I did a survey recently of um, I really anybody in touch with the healthcare system on burnout um, to mm -hmm. try to get people's more subjective take on what their experience was and uh, maybe things that need to change uh, to get some get some feelers out. And mm -hmm. uh, by and large, uh, I found there's two groups of physicians. Uh, there's one group, and it's honestly the much smaller of the two groups. Uh, who are very happy with their position in life and they really don't want much of anything to change. And there's another mm -hmm. group of physicians who are so burned out and bummed out by the system that we currently have that they're looking for a way out. And mm -hmm. that's definitely the much larger group of physicians. And you really, if, yeah. if you really talk amongst physicians, that's really the, the, the broad, you know, current state of affairs that the system that we currently have just isn't tenable. It's not feasible, right? We're, we're doing this yeah. mostly just to charge insurances and bill and make systems more money instead of actually providing healthcare and helping people get better. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's unsustainable is, you know, that's, I think the word that I feel like most connected to, it's just an unsustainable system on so many levels for oh, patients, for doctors. It just, yeah, I agree. Yeah, but so the interesting thing is there were there were a couple of administrators who had also taken the survey, and mm -hmm. though they too reported burnout, uh, it was sure. uh, kind of interesting to see that from the more administrative side of things. But uh, I don't know if you remember this, but I, I at least I remember uh, when, when we were in med school, they they published this or showed us this graph of how the cost of healthcare has risen uh, has risen as a uh, in direct correlation with the number of MBAs in the system. So the more finance and, and lawyers people we bring into the system, uh, the more the sure. cost of healthcare uh, has increased. And, you know, it, the, the big thing nowadays, I think is too, is like, th there's really no skin of the game for either one of us, you know, the patient or the physician, right? Because it's mm -hmm. a third party that's making all the arrangements. They're doing all the scheduling, they're doing all the billing, they're doing all the collecting. And, you know, patients show up, and I see this in my clinic all the time, patients show up and, you know, they just want me to like provide them some kind of fix. And they're perfectly fine showing up week after week. Um, without changing anything in their life, because there's almost like no investment uh, into their own health, right? Right, and yeah. yeah, and I and I understand where you know the accountable care organizations and where some of the impetus was for some of that change, and and you're right, there has to be a kind of a personal skin in the game for wanting health and having that be a priority. Um, and then also being able to facilitate that as a physician. Um, right. And that's right. a real challenge. And I feel for our primary care folks because we've put them in an, an impossible position. No, no doubt. Although even on the primary care side of things, I mean, I, I'm sure you've, you've been involved with similar stories. I mean, the, the care that is provided sometimes is perfectly abysmal. Uh, I mean, just uh, just today I saw a patient who I'm just so frustrated by 
Uh, she has she has some rheumatoid disease. She's been on methotrexate in the past, but for some reason last year she got switched over to prednisone. And over the last year, she's gained 100 pounds of weight now since she's been placed on prednisone. And right. her primary care, um, I'm going to say provider, even though I hate the term for many reasons, um, because I don't know if that's a physician or a nurse practitioner. I actually think it is a nurse practitioner. I don't think it's an actual physician. Um, but so two things. Um, she was prescribed Keflex, uh, two-week course of Keflex for neck swelling, right? No no infection, no redness. Neck swelling was the diagnosis for which she was prescribed two weeks of antibiotics. Uh, and then she was told she needed a gastric bypass because of the weight gain, right? And I was like, just get off the steroids, right? You get off the steroids and I am treating her for a chronic wound that's not healing. Like your, your weight gain is going to go away and uh, you know, your wound is going to heal, right? You get off the, get off the steroids. And so that was two weeks ago. I saw her again today and she's gained more weight. She's you know already a large woman to begin with. And now she's having even more difficulties getting around. It's actually her 80 year old mother that takes her to all her appointments. Who's like, you know, she's a, she's a skinny uh, string bean, you know, 80, 80 year old lady. She's like, I'm having yeah. a really hard time getting her to all these appointments. I'm like, I understand. I get that. And right. in the last two weeks, because of this extra weight now, she's struggling to breathe. And so uh, they actually upped her steroid dose for her COPD and put her on BiPAP and told her, you know what? Um, you actually don't need a bypass, which by the way, she's already had 25 years ago. Uh, <laughs> and instead told her she needed to uh, take Ozempic uh, to, to lose weight. Um, so like, we're, this is a primary care provider, right? Uh, and I'm like, you're, you're, you're missing the root of the problem. And, right. uh, but this is just, uh, and, and the reason I think this is, a, this is a nurse practitioner, just from, from what she's been saying, this is someone who works in neurosurgery most of the time, and just does this on the side and happens to live across the street in the same neighborhood. So I, I think it is a nurse practitioner and not a, not an actual physician, but, um, uh, you know, you look at all these um, advanced practice practitioners, or whatever the term is in, in your part of the country. And um, we know, and, and most of the data actually comes out of emergency medicine where we see that patients who get seen by these advanced practice pr providers have uh, delayed diagnosis, higher cost of care in the long run, and, and their, and their you know, medical problems um, run its course much longer than they should because they never get to the root of the cause. So I'm wondering... I mean, for one, that's that's a big problem in healthcare too. That drives up the cost, right? Because we're delaying diagnosis, more expensive care, yada yada yada. Um, but there's this big push to train more of them because they're obviously cheaper to train and educate. There's much shorter education span, uh, much cheaper education, and then they're put to the same level as physicians, right? I mean, uh, you know, if you look at my training, some degree, right? Right? Yeah, but you know, like I, I see this in my practice all the time. Um, all the NPs uh, essentially get to do the same stuff that I do, except I get to go to the OR every once in a while, and they don't. But aside from that, they do the same stuff in clinic that I do. They're held to the same standards. They're expected to do the same work, and yet they don't have the same training. Um, so I'm wondering what what your perspective on that and what your experience has been with those, because while mm -hmm. they are, you know, I, I, they're absolutely necessary. I couldn't do what I'm doing right now without them. Um, right. I, I do see so many problems, especially with us bringing even more of them into the system instead of supporting the physicians we already have. Yeah, and I think, you know, step one is we have to build a support for our PCPs and honor the work that they do, because I think they're absolutely instrumental in fixing the system. I mean, I think we can throw band-aids on patients' problems all day long, but like you said, if you don't get down to the root of it, you're just putting a million band-aids on all kinds of problems. And then you're just adding also to the side effects and all the other things that just right. compile. 
right? Um, from the APP or advanced provider situation, I mean, from the ER perspective, I think that you're right. I think that they play an absolutely incredible role in what we do. And I think that there's absolutely a, a piece in the healthcare that they're essential for and can really be helpful for. And we absolutely use them as kind of adjunct providers, um, for lack of a better term. But, you know, we we supervise all of our APP patients in real time in the ER. And I know that's not the case in every every place, certainly. Right. Um, but we we do. And that's been a, a group policy. And I appreciate that that's a, a standard and an expectation. Um, and I think in the primary care world, I think for managing you know, from a systems perspective and trying to like zoom out, I think for managing low risk patients who don't have chronic health conditions or, you know, just need annual physicals and checkups and blood work and whatnot, I think there's a great role for that. And I think for patients with complex medical diseases, and it sounds like your patient's a perfect example of that, that shouldn't be probably managed by a nurse practitioner. I mean, I just, it's, I love them. And I think that there's absolutely a role. Um, and when you don't have the same pathophys and background and all of that stuff, there's just things that are going to, that are going to be missed. And I think there was a study and I thought it was with primary care and out of somewhere in the Midwest. And I, I want to say Mississippi, and I don't think that that's accurate, but with comparing PCPs, um, versus mid-level providers and just the cost of care and all of that, and, you know, the referrals out and whatnot, and it was just way higher and, um, I think that ultimately as a country, we've got to get a control over the cost of care and also the outcomes. Absolutely. Um, they're just abysmal compared to other places in the world. And we just spend the most on healthcare and get kind of the least out of it. And right. as a society, but I think as a society, we're also going to have to make a push for how do we take care of ourselves um, so that the next pill isn't the answer. Absolutely. No, I absolutely agree. And I think for you in the ER too, you probably see a lot of things that should be dealt with by a primary care physician instead of the emergency room. Yeah. And in fairness to them, you know, the prior auth situation is a disaster. You try to get patients what they need right. and all of a sudden delay upon delay or it's refused. And then you say, go to the ER and we get it done. I mean, yeah. and it's done at 10 times the cost, um, but it gets done. Right. And, and, and I understand why patients in certain, um, you know, positions also use the ER pretty regularly if they can't access a PCP or they don't have insurance. Like it's just, that's the last, last place they want to be. And it's the only place that they can get care. Right. Yeah. And, and that's the, the last place to get care. I mean, that's, that's a good point. I mean, that's one thing that um, is sort of a sticking point for me is it's, it's not so much that we need a universal healthcare provider or that we need to. Um, you know, we need to address the, the payment system, the way insurance is dealt with, no doubt. Um, but a big issue still underlying all of that is even access to good care, right? Yeah. I mean, even just access to a a, a physician or a any sort of healthcare provider sometimes is severely lacking, uh, right. which is a big problem as well. Yeah, so and it's funny because going back to kind of in the in the beginning, we were talking about like this is just sustainable anymore, and and I kind of was laughing in my head. I was like, you know what? Like the only group that this is sustainable for is really the insurance companies. Exactly. I mean, they're just making so much money. And I just think fundamentally, I just don't agree that that should be the case. I mean, we're trying to take care of patients and, and our population as a whole. And ultimately, uh, insurance companies are just making a lot of money. Right. And, and that comes from 
ultimately like the people paying into that system. And yeah, and in terms of healthcare costs, I remember that same graph going up and really doctor salaries have always been such a small portion of that and have stayed relatively stable over time um, and have not increased with inflation or any of that. that. And just, it's true. It's like the business of medicine has just taken off in terms of making money. And that's ultimately kind of making money off of patients not getting the care that they need. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, I, I do this, uh, what I do every time a patient brings a bill to me is like, you know, like just a couple of weeks ago, I had a patient uh, complain that every time he comes to my clinic, he gets charged $500. And so every time I do this without fail, I pull up the CMS physician fee schedule. And it's like for this visit right here, uh, you can see the code. That's the code I bill. You can see here for this $500 visit, um, you know, I'm salaried, so it doesn't even matter to me personally, but I'm saying if I was an independent practice and I would be collecting fees, CMS would pay me $39.37. So I have no idea where the other $460 in charges come from, right? <laughs> it's it's always mind-blowing yeah. to patients to patient to see that because they think I personally collect that entire bill, sure. right? <laughs> it's like, I wish, yeah, and I wish. <laughs> right, and I understand, you know, there are facility fees that you've got, we've got to pay, you know, the nurses and everybody else who's helping us with that visit. I totally understand that. And yet somehow insurance companies are making just crazy money. I mean, absolutely. But I mean, on that, on that same note, if you think about it, you know, my salary far exceeds that of the nurses, right? So if there's me in the room, a nurse, and maybe even the scheduler at the front desk and, and a little bit of, you know, render, whatever, you know, you have to pay just for the upkeep of the facilities, maybe, you know, none of that, right? If I only get $40 and that sustains my salary, right? How much of that $460 really goes towards the salary and the upkeep of the facility? Vast majority does not, right? Um, And, and the other thing is obviously any, any, any number, right? Any price that we put on healthcare, there, there's three different numbers that uh, we put out. There's what it actually costs, which no one actually knows. There's what we say it costs, right? We just put, make up a number. And then it's what reins- uh, insurance actually reimburses. And those three numbers really have uh, little or nothing to do with each other, except that what it actually costs yeah. is far less than what we say it costs. And then, you know, obviously what, what insurance uh, reimburses us. Yeah, no, I agree that the yeah. system is completely, the, the way it is right now, it, we're going to reach a breaking point at some point soon. And it's, and it's going to make things a lot worse for everybody involved, uh, which is frightening because yeah. we see we see it coming, and yet no one seems to want to do anything about I mean, it, right? So, but I think ultimately, the people who are profiting are the people who are wanting to maintain that system in place. Oh, and for until sure. those people are make, are feeling the pain of it, the system isn't going to change. I mean, I do think that unfortunately, it's going to get worse before it gets better. No doubt, and we're going to hit a tipping point. Um, and I don't know where that tipping point is. And, you know, I, I would love to say that we'll reach a tipping point and it'll be fixed in our career lifetimes. And yeah. I recognize that that's pretty optimistic. For sure. I mean, so let me ask you this though, on the career side of things, are you thinking of sticking with medicine um, for a while longer? Are you, you know, what, what's your timeline there? Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting for those of us who've been out of residency kind of close to, and I know you were, you had a much longer residency and fellowship than I did, but uh, I think those of us are in that like eight to 13 year window post-residency. And I can speak for the ER docs. I know a lot of people are looking for outs. Yeah. You know, I think everybody is sort of recognizes that this isn't sustainable from, you know, a well-being standpoint and not and just not wanting to do it anymore. Um, again, I think COVID really did exacerbate that for a lot of folks. Um, for me personally, I think I've found a decent balance right now of kind of cutting back shifts and doing it 
um, almost what would be considered part-time. I think, you know, between 10 and 12 shifts a month is really what I'm doing now. Um, but that is probably what keeps me sane. I mean, yeah. uh, finding a balance in that and also recognizing and questioning the, some, some of the old school dogma, I guess is what I wanted to say in a politically correct way <laughs> of what's expected and what's full time and what's considered, you know, full time. And, you know, the 80 hour training limits back in residency, you know, our generation was 80. kind of fed this like, right. Well, and, and we were fed like that's weak, you know, like right. 80 hours is a joke. And like, you guys should be able to do this and not question it. And, and at the same time, you look at any other profession and would that be expected? And, um, and somehow that was accepted and yeah. we all bought in. Um, and I still look at that now in terms of, I think until we start to question some of those belief systems, that were put in place, you know, 80 years ago when physicians were living at the hospital, um, they were residents right. because they lived at a hospital and often were probably using drugs to keep themselves awake right. for multiple days on end. And I mean, at some point we have to say, okay, is that a system we want to support? Like, is that really how we want to train the future docs of America? Like this right. is Maybe we should question that and maybe we should pay them a livable wage and make residency, you know, twice as long. And you pay people a, a decent living salary. And yeah, it's maybe 50 hours a week instead of 80. Right. No, that's uh, I have so many issues with uh, with our graduate medical education. Um, I mean, you mentioned the salary, of course. And if you look at the salary that residents get these years, um, you know, it hasn't kept up with inflation. So, uh, you know, numerically um, in my residency, um, I made the same annual salary as my attendings made in their residency. So, you know, 20 years prior you know, $50,000 went a whole lot further than it did in the yeah. 20 teens when I threw my residency. So, uh, you know, the, the, the financial aspects that are obviously not uh, sustainable in the long run, but it's cheap labor for the hospital. I mean, it's really cheap slave labor, if, if you think about it. And, um, you know, even on the, on the 80 hours and the working, um, you know, there's a, uh, there's a study that, that showed that your brain essentially functions as if you are at the, uh, above the legal limit, like a 0.04 alcohol level after about 16 hours of staying awake. And nobody, sure. nobody bat an eye about me being at the hospital working 30, 36 hours at a stretch. But oh my yeah. God, if I had a drink at lunch uh, on my days that I just had clinic or something, couldn't do that, right? But there's really no difference. And I remember even in my residency training, uh, there were days when I was post-call and I was rounding on patients and I would come back the next day and I was looking at my notes and I was like, I don't even remember rounding on this patient, right? I mean, how scary is that? Uh, that I don't remember even seeing that patient the previous day, reading my own note and having no recollection of that because I was I was awake. It's it, it's a scary proposition for patients, for for everybody. Everybody. I mean, it's just it's just cruel in a lot of ways that we we would subject ourselves to that and patients to that from a patient safety standpoint. That's, it's crazy. It's it's absolutely. I mean, it's, it's sheer insanity. But but so yeah. uh, you're looking at the support structure then for physicians. Um, I mean, I think it's absolutely wonderful that you had that you know, ser serendipitous uh, you know interaction with your uh, psychologist in your residency training. And I would say most most training problems don't have that at all. So that actually wasn't residency. That's actually at the hospital I work for currently. Okay. Um, and in fairness, or you know, the sad part about it was that position was created after a physician suicide. 
which is something that still blows my mind. I mean, I, I've been dealing with depression. I have been through suicidal thoughts myself many times over my life. And physicians yeah. still have the highest rate of suicides of any yeah. profession. And here you have someone who really should be the you know, quintessential emblem of health. And, and they're the ones that take their own lives the most. How does that make any sense? And how do we not provide the support? I mean, I actually just saw an article the other day that suicide rates across the country have gone up in 2023 over previous years. Right. So we're, we're actually and this is not just physicians, this is all comers. Right. So right. Um, this, we're really not addressing the issue at all. Right. We're just completely no. turning a blind eye to the issue of mental and emotional support to everybody. Right. But in our discussion, obviously, um, physicians, physician and trainings and whatnot. Um, but no, I, I want to hear more about this psychologist, though, and, and, and what how that has then shaped you becoming a coach. Yeah, I mean. Just to touch base real quickly on the mental health standpoint, because I feel like I can't jump over that. Um, you know, I think obviously there's a huge need for mental health providers in all sense, you know, whether that's therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists. And I think there's a huge need for that across the board. And I agree from a physician standpoint, we are probably some of the worst in ter terms of taking care of ourselves. And there are also huge barriers to that care in our profession. And I think that you look at it, um, and I know that there's some advocacy advocacy happening but you know you when you get help then do you have to report that to your board how that's put on your applications for a hospital and or licensure and I think it really discourages a lot of people from getting help um and I know for me personally uh, there was a period in like a postpartum period where I was really struggling and that was the first thought I had yeah how is this going to show up on my licensing and who am I going to have to report it to and that just shouldn't be a barrier. And it I just, agree. It, it's just so sad to me that we are held to a difference. And at some point you're like, you. so really what the system is creating is people who need help, who are afraid to get help. And it's just such a vicious cycle. I agree. And, and it's it's such an oxymoron even in the healthcare professions that we're really not looking at health as a whole, no. right? I mean, it's just so terrible. But um, so that- but but I still want to get back to you know yeah. really how you ended up in that in that coaching sphere, um, you know yeah, so what sparked that? I, you know I can go back to one conversation that he had and he was just like Heidi, what sparks joy for you right now? And I honestly it was like this blank. I I didn't know how to answer him. Yeah. I was just like I don't know that anything sparks joy for me right now. Yeah. I can't. I mean I. I can't think of one thing that I would do right now that would spark joy for me. And I like hung up the phone with him. And that was like absolutely the light bulb moment of this has to change. Right. I can't do this. I just can't do this like this anymore. Um, and, you know, it took me probably several months to get to the point where, okay, what do I need to say no to? And I should, and and so I offloaded and part of it was the admin was not giving me any joy anymore. And I realized it was causing a lot of frustration um, in my personal and professional life that I was just like, this isn't worth it. Um, so, but that was a conversation that really sparked, okay, this has got to change. Yeah. And part of that was I had become way less physically active. And I think, you know, that's the stuff that drops off. Um, and I gained weight and then you throw in the postpartum period and all of that stuff. Um, and so I listened, there was a life coach, well, weight loss coach, um, Katrina Ubell, she's an MD, she's a pediatrician, but now has like a weight loss for doctors only, uh, podcast and program. And I started listening to her program 
our podcast and really started kind of applying some of that. And that was actually my first intro to any of the like life coaching, so to speak, um, other than with speaking with that psychologist. And um, that was my first clue. And honestly, that was what kind of sparked a little bit of change and getting back into shape and honestly losing some weight and kind of sparking like, okay, I can do this. And I ultimately am responsible for taking care of myself. Right. And I'm, I wasn't doing it before, but now it's my job. Like I, I have to do this. Um, so, so yeah. So anyway, I started listening to her podcast. I ended up li listening to the life coach school podcast and then really started doing some of the kind of, they had a program called self-coaching scholars that I was in for a little while and just decided to do the certification because I think it just made such a difference in my life and with mindset work and realizing what was possible and where I could drop stuff and like, drop it guilt-free and be like, okay, I can either choose to continue to do this and, and go down that same path or I can like, all of a sudden I can shift. And yeah. that mindset shift was just huge for me. Right. Um, no, that's, so. that's that transformation there. You know, it, it I, I always say, uh, ha, you know, me entering the coaching sphere and, and having coaches myself has been one of the most monumental changes for myself in my own life. Uh, it's been yeah. such a profound such really such a huge, profoundly positive impact on me. I mean, I, I've gotten more out of coaching than I ever did out of therapy. Um, and uh, that's been such, uh, in such an incredible journey. So um, who are you coaching these days? Are you mostly focusing on physicians or what's, what's your group of people that uh, you support? Yeah. So I, um, right now I have, I have kind of two different programs. One, I'm actually working on a new program that I'm really excited about. Um, that's kind of more aimed at, um, doctors and specifically probably doctor moms, you know, young children who like don't have any time for themselves and are overwhelmed, um, and really feeling the burn of that and the struggle, you know, juggling career and family and really creating and crafting time for themselves. Um, I think time poverty is one of those things that all of us can relate to in terms of when you don't have enough time or you don't feel like you have enough time to get done what you want to get done. And I think that really leads to increased overwhelm and stress um, yeah. and burnout. And I think that's really for a lot of, you know, people pleasing perfectionists as doctors and parents, it's really easy to get trapped into not making any time for yourself. Um, so really I'm working on that pr program and putting together kind of final touches on that, but also I have a longitudinal program that, uh, supports it's it right now it is for doctors. I have, um, some interest for some non-docs and I'm definitely open to that and opening up other options. Um, but it's, it's a cool program. I've had, um, a few people involved with that pretty continuously for several months now. Um, and we kind of go over monthly coaching topics, but also kind of with a self-coaching model of like, let me teach you some of these coaching tools so that you can integrate them into your daily life yeah. and ultimately take them wherever you want to go. And it, it kind of crosses, you know, professional, personal, all kinds of stuff that comes up. Uh, and it's a small group program. And it's really actually been a phenomenal community and a lot of fun just to get together and bounce off ideas off. And, you know, I think it's fun when you have different people that their beliefs show up differently, you know, and yeah. there are some cross-cultural, you know, beliefs that all we all buy into, but it's so easy to sometimes see in another person how it's not serving them. And all of a sudden you're like, Ooh, that's also not serving me. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And so it, the light bulb moments are fun in a group setting, I think, because all of a sudden it's easier to see in another person. Yes. Um, yeah, absolutely. For sure. But, yeah. So, um, 
I, I want to put you on the spot here for a second. Um, you know, sometimes when I tell people that I, I do coaching, I get this blank stare. And people yeah. are like, huh, what's that? Right, because right. everybody knows sports coaches. Right. Uh, but the the idea of life coaching, some, I think there is a bit of a stigma associated with that as well. Like, oh, you can't figure this out on your own kind of kind of situation. So um, how, how do you describe coaching to other people? Yeah, I think for me, coaching is really about looking at what's what's working in your life for the results that you have, whether that's working or not working, I guess I should say. So sure. the results you have in your life and how you get there and how your mindset is contributing to that and mm -hmm. looking at where you want to go and how you can shape ultimately the results that you want in your life and the impact that you can have. So I think a lot of it is about agency um, and, and your control over what you can do and how the mind plays a big part of that. You know, and I think therapy a lot of the time is very past focused. And I think yes. there's absolutely a place and a time for it. Um, and for me, coaching is future focused. You know, where are you now? Where do you want to go? And how can we get you there? Yes, absolutely. So um, I, I absolutely agree with everything you say. I mean, I, I, that's absolutely been my own experience with with coaching as well, which is why it's I think it's been so so much more beneficial to me than therapy because I you know my past is in the past. It's done. I can't change anything about it. Right. Um, so focusing on my past doesn't really help me move forward. Now, but I agree. There's some people that need to uh, untie those tethers that are anchoring sure. them to the past before yeah. they can move on. So there's definitely some some overlap between the two disciplines. But I agree that yeah, I think being that future focused is so important. Um, so one of the things uh, that that I think in our world that I found is uh, I think a lot of physicians are very skeptical uh, about the idea of coaching. They don't know much about it. Um, but I, you know, you know, you and I are both in this, this world and we're obviously trying to make a difference. So how can we bridge that gap? How can we bring more coaching to physicians, make them more open to it and get them to truly understand what it can actually do for them? Right. You know, it's funny, I was actually working on a, a Mythbusters kind of <laughs> PDF of like breaking them, like what is coaching and like how can we, you know, bust that myth of what coaching is and what it isn't. Um, I was just working on that the other day. So I'm happy to share that with you when I put that sure. together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I think I think normalizing it is part of it. You know, it's so interesting, like you mentioned with the sports world of like, that's just a normal thing. And, right. you know, in other professions, like with business executives and different CEO coaches have been around for decades. And that's kind of been a normal experience for docs. We've just never had that. Um, and that's never been something that's been normalized. And like you said, I think a lot of us are like, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, like you should be able to do this yourself. And if, if you're not, then something's wrong with you. Um, and I think that's just such a kind of weird mentality that we bought into for, and, and I think we can change that yes. ultimately, you know, but I think that getting it available and out there to people, um, and I think also, and that was one of the goals of my kind of group program was do it at a low cost rate that people can try it, get involved and see, and see what it's about mm -hmm. and have the transformation available to them and not have it be a $10,000 cost. Sure, sure. Yeah, no, I think um, uh, definitely normalizing is going to be uh, essential. And I think the in interesting thing about coaching too is, I mean, if you look at us humans, right, as a species, as a biologic being, we're not meant to live this life alone. I mean, at the very basic level, that's why we have partners. That's why we have spouses, right? That's why we have friends. We're not yeah. meant to live this life alone. And yet, especially in the medicine world, uh, we we push so much individualism. No, you are the doctor. You're responsible. This is your decision. This is your patient. You are the only one who gets to make the call. 
uh, that it, it's almost hard to ask for help. It's almost hard mm -hmm. to accept the fact that we're meant to do this together. Um, We've been taught not to ask for help. I mean, right, if you think right. about medical <laughs> residency, I mean, that system was not designed to encourage us to ask for help. Right. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I, I was just thinking about that the, the other day, yeah. right? You, you think about your like your internal medicine rounds. The med student presents something and uh, the attending just, you know, it's like, well, you're wrong. All right, next up, intern. And the intern presents something. Well, you're wrong, right? And then next up. And then it gets up to the chief and the chief says something. Well, you, you're kind of right, but also wrong. Here's what I think. And if you think about it, that you're doing that on rounds really gives you the gives you the idea that you can't ask for help, right? Because the you're just going to be told you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, instead of building up on something that you might actually be right about, right? Um, yeah, yeah. We, the whole culture really needs to change from the very. I mean, beginning. and I, yeah, and I agree, and I I think that if we could start it over, part of me wants to just like we need a think tank of people of like let's shake this entire system up and like redesign it from the from the ground up because the shame based teaching in medicine it it just doesn't work. I mean, right. and they've found this in education, they found this in all other domains of like teaching with a shame kind of overhanging it all just like not helpful it's not right. helpful for short-term memory it's not helpful for long-term memory it just doesn't have the impact that i think once once upon a time it, it, there was a theory that it did and it was helpful but now i mean if you think about it you're exactly right in terms of residency you know it was frowned upon to call your senior or your fellow or your attending you know if you're overnight and you think back of like overnight in the MICU and as a first or second year resident and where that culture came from and, you know, all these like unspoken expectations that were passed on. Right. Yeah, no, I actually had two conversations with uh, former residents of mine in the last couple of months, and both of them had reached out to the program for help because they said, look, uh, this I'm struggling. I need help. Mm -hmm. And the program both programs, different programs, uh, turned around and said, uh, well, tough shit. <laughs> That's, that was essentially, I mean, there's way more to both of those stories and I'm not here to tell them, but that was essentially the bottom line was tough shit, deal with it, uh, which is uh, really terrible for a training program to do, right? I mean, if we're really trying to produce outstanding physicians, we got to do better. But from a training program perspective, all they're looking at is trying to graduate as many residents as possible and uh, get as many residents as possible to pass their boards, right? That, that's really the only goal that they exist, right? Uh, graduate uh, residents and get them to pass their boards. Beyond that, they don't care, right? It doesn't matter for them what those physicians are going to do 20 years later. They'll be long gone. And I think um, that there are, you know, there are different programs that I think have been really invested in resident education um, and some of the more academic places, I will say, and not even academic in terms of research heavy, um, but are really, really steeped in resident education and really believe in it. And they're, you know, phenomenal program directors, I think, out there. And they're still in this stew yeah. <laughs> of culture that we have. So, you know, but they're in it. And I will say, and I, for, I can speak for emergency medicine in particular lately, there's been this huge boom of mostly HCA hospitals building these residency programs and really it, that is a profit-based decision, in my Absolutely. opinion. Well, you know, they're getting free labor from the government, essentially, um, to produce these residents. And they've and going back to the mid-level provider, the ABP stuff, like they, a lot of those guys got re just replaced by residents because all of a sudden they were cheaper. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, they had four years of medical education and they were cheaper labor and they put them into this very protocolized medicine mm -hmm. and all of a sudden they're given protocols, you know, for, oh, you have a septic patient. This is what you do. Put in the yeah. order set. And if, and I just feel for them because that's just a recipe for disaster for Absolutely. us as patients in the future and for them as physicians when they leave that environment. And no and the people who are benefiting are these for-profit hospital systems. No doubt. Well, we don't have to talk about HCA because we could go down a rabbit hole with that. <laughs> yes, system. yes, thank you. Pull okay. <laughs> me out of the rabbit hole. <laughs> we well, we'll stay. We'll stay out of that. Uh, out of that mud hole there. Yeah, no yep. doubt. Um, all right. So, I, what do you think is is one thing that every healthcare system should change uh, to at least start turning the tide? Mm -hmm. I, I think we have to put people over profits mm -hmm. and I mean, people as providers and patients. Yes. I'll, I'll completely second all of that. No doubt. Uh, any last thoughts? Where can people reach you? Um, I, my website is doctorsempowered.com. Um, I have an email address, doctorsempowered at gmail.com, but also I'm on, um, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, um, so reach me there. Um, I'm really, thank you for sharing this time. I think it's awesome, the work you're doing and really excited, you know, about about coaching. I mean, I'm I'm all in. I think that it's just made such a big difference for me personally and for the people who I've been able to, to coach. And I think this work can really help transform um, ultimately the culture of medicine. I really believe that. I might be a bit of an optimist there and it may take some time to, to shift. Um, but I'm a believer. I think that it really can start to shift things. And even if it's a one degree turn, yes, know, long term, it makes a difference. No, I absolutely agree. And I, I appreciate your time. I appreciate you sharing your story and all your struggles and experiences. Uh, absolutely wonderful story. Amazing to catch up with you, Heidi. Uh, it's yeah. been so long. And, I know. Uh, Let's not uh, wait 13 years next time. <laughs> I know. Well, I think... Uh, considering we're both in the coaching sphere now, I think uh, there's bound to be uh, for sure more contact in terms of how we both can help physicians yeah. more uh, and, and maybe make a change in the healthcare field because th this absolutely needs to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. All right. Have a, have a good afternoon. You as well. I'll talk to you. All right. Bye. Bye. All right. What did you think of that conversation? Man, it was so good to catch up with Heidi and she really has made a huge difference in her own life as well as the life of her clients through coaching. And it's just so nice to see a fellow physician who has had the same experience as I have with coaching to empower people for change, to give people back the agency over their own lives, to really get them to the level of success that they're looking for, right? To find meaning and fulfillment in your life again. The power of coaching is unmeasurable. So if you want to reach out to Heidi to find out more about her, the contact information is listed below. Of course, you can also reach out to me if you're interested in coaching. SuccessValk offers coaching to entrepreneurs and professionals. I have medical career coaching packages available for physicians, trainees, students, nurses, you name it. And of course, if you want to do it on your own, if you're not quite ready yet to have a coach, to have that guide by your side, the Phoenix program is there for you if you are going through burnout right now and you're looking for change. So let me know in the comments what you thought of the conversations, what questions came about, what comments rang true, where do you stand with all of this? Until next time, remember to unleash your genius.